Welcome to another edition of Cybersecurity Dispatch. This is your host, Andy Anderson. In this episode, Privacy Within the Digital Ecosystem, we talk with Pam Dixon, Executive Director of the World Privacy Forum, a public interest research group devoted to privacy. She shares her thoughts on the upcoming implementation of the General Data Protection Regulation, GDPR, and what the future of privacy looks like. My name is Pam Dixon. I'm the executive director of the World Privacy Forum. We're a nonprofit public interest research group. We focus on privacy and related issues. Um, Well, great. And sort of, you know, there's privacy has been so in the news in the last couple of weeks, particularly with sort of the Facebook, uh, Cambridge Analytics sort of issue coming to light. What's sort of top of mind when you think of that, uh, of that issue there? So many things. We are living in an incredibly important time. It's a watershed moment. So, all of us who are here right now and, and adults and really thinking about these issues and, and or not thinking, just participating, all of us who are in the digital ecosystem right now are experiencing the growing pangs of that digital ecosystem. And right now, we're especially in the US, we're in an environment where a lot of the rules around privacy don't actually give us privacy. They kind of give us some aspects of certain things, but it's not necessarily the ability to control our digital exhaust. And when I talk to people, they really want that, among other things. We can get hurt by a lot of data that's out there about us that we really don't have control over. For example, whenever we use our credit or debit card to make purchases and then the purchase history is sold, then someone, some data broker somewhere decides what kind of consumer we are and whether or not we deserve a a certain type of offer, maybe to a good college or not, or maybe a health plan decides, oh, maybe we should charge them more because they're buying a certain type of, you know, food or whatnot. And this really happens. Our transactional life and our data crumbs that we leave has a a genuine marketplace impact on our lives. And it's not disputable anymore. I think we all know that this is happening. So what does that mean in today's world and for all of us who are living in it? Well, what that means right now is we just don't have the tools and the rights that we need right now to effectuate uh, privacy or uh, autonomy on our own behalf. Not quite yet. I do believe, though, in Europe that Europeans have a lot more rights. And I'm wondering if the European law that's going into effect in May of 2018, the GDPR, General Data protection regulation. I'm wondering if that will change the landscape to some degree. It's going to be interesting. Yeah. Walk me through. I mean, you know, we've, I've talked about GDPR with a lot of our guests because I think it's probably the biggest sort of iceberg that's approaching in many sort of companies when they think about compliance, when they think about security, when they think about, you know, data overall, because they're yeah. sort of like three legs of a stool, you know, and, and we've really focused on the, like the right to be forgotten. And then the other piece, which is the sort of data breach notification. But it sounds like there are other pieces that sort of are more your focus and and sort of thinking about in GDPR. So walk us through those. So GDPR, those are important aspects, but I actually am very torn about the right to be forgotten. I worry about it. I have to tell you, I think it was really, it was helpful for privacy, but it's really bad for the internet. So I do have questions about it because it just, it worries me. I, I don't like history getting scrubbed. I'm all for like keeping history, but it's a very controversial thing. All right, I won't go there. So, GDPR, there are elements of GDPR that are incredibly important. And 
So one, let's talk about the sensitive information categories. So in GDPR, certain information is considered to be sensitive and it, it gets extra processing attention and you have to get different and more robust consent to process that information. And biometric information is part of that. That is so important. Now, of course, there are exemptions, but if someone is going to collect your biometric, guess what? You are going to know about it. And I think that's a good thing. We are moving into what I call a strong identity world where our requirements to prove our identity will be heightened. And so biometrics are very appealing to, for example, governments and biometric IDs and whatnot. I spent uh, a year, I lived in India for a year, and I studied the India's Aadhaar biometric ID system. I wrote a really intensive scholarly journal on it. It was published in Nature Springer last year now. But the title of the article is A Failure to Do No Harm, India's Aadhaar System. (laughs) That should tell you something. So, I think, in fact, I'm sure I was the only Western NGO that was in India in 2010 when Aadhaar started. And I went in 2010, 2011, 2012, and then 2014 to study Aadhaar. It was absolutely amazing. It taught me so much about biometrics and identity and rights. And, you know, biometric deserves to be a sensitive information category. And I think Europe did the right thing. And I think that's going to change and help uh, Europeans. Another really important thing that the Europeans did was they made it impermissible and actually outright illegal to do automated profiling on a person without consent and knowledge. So data brokers will be out of business in Europe. So for example, Axiom, be able to, you know, get a list of people who'd subscribe to, you know, a diabetic magazine and then infer that they had diabetes and then sell that list you know, to an unknown third party to you. That won't be happening in Europe. But I mean, you know, as I think about that, so there's the the companies that we don't think about, maybe Axiom or the other data brokers, but like, I mean, essentially Google or Facebook or Twitter or any of the major like social media are, they're incredible data profiling companies. Would they also not be able to do that? I mean, I assume that they'll just add it to their terms and conditions that as a user, you're agreeing to that. Um, Actually, I think it's more robust than that. So I don't, view those companies as data brokers. But I do think that absolutely everyone is going to have to get consent for things. So I mean, for example, for our website as an NGO, we're going to have to put up a new consent for cookies. So we're racing to get that done. I mean, look, you're not going to be able to do things in an unconsented way. And the the consent has specific requirements. So it's not going to be buried in a terms and service at all. It's going to be in your face consent. And I actually don't think that's terrible. but uh, you watch, everything is going to be consented. Yeah, but I'm curious, like the when you think of, it's just such an asymmetrical sort of balance of power between like an individual or even groups of individuals and one of these, you know, incredibly large corporations which have data on, on entire individuals, right? And so how do you think about sort of balancing that scale and, and about privacy, right? Because they're with their, with algorithms, with sort of massive amounts of data, they essentially can wash over your ability to sort of hide your Um, to remain private. Right. So here's the way I conceptualize privacy is privacy is a subset of the broader human rights of autonomy and human freedoms and freedom of thought and freedom of expression and fairness. And I view it as a subset. So when I talk about privacy, I'm really referring to the broader issues, especially human autonomy, human dignity. 
these kinds of things, we should be able to determine our path in life now. Isn't that American? But look, if there's any American dream, that's it. And privacy is really, instead of the right to be kind of hidden away, it's, it might be, that is a subset of the definition of privacy, but it's today in the digital ecosystem, it's really about, okay, who's holding my data? What rights do I have to see it, to correct it, to delete it, to manage it, to take it with me? What rights do I have to prevent its sale to third parties? Or what rights do I have to prevent its use in meaningful marketplace decisions about me that could impact my my opportunities or finances in the future? That, to me, is what it's all about. And you are absolutely right. Right now, there is tremendous asymmetry. The because we, you know, we have been in this growing digital ecosystem, there has been such a a data grab, and there has been absolutely a very ineffective resistance against that. Until the GDPR, I think the GDPR was the first big hammer that said, "Okay, we're going to find a little bit of balance here." The the pendulum has to swing. A little further the other way. And I think that was the first step. And I think as time goes on, we'll find that there's going to have to be a middle ground. It can't be we get everything we want, but it can't be that, you know, companies get everything they want either. I mean, if you can imagine the HIPAA fight, health information privacy uh, was only passed in the 90s. Can you imagine if your doctor had the right to sell your medical record to anyone who wanted to buy it? I mean, we're lucky we got that through when we did. And we're really facing the same thing now. So we need new protections. And I think that the protections have to be smart and have to be born out of a new way of thinking. I don't think we can just simply apply all these old laws and say, look, let's just think the way we've always thought and try to create you know, new rules out of old thought. I think we need to have fresh ideas. I think industry needs to come to the center. I think we need to have much more temperate discussions. Yeah. You know, unfortunately, I think the sort of congressional sort of legal environment that we're in right now, like the likelihood of, of Congress passing anything meaningful that's not controlled by special interest is sort of, it's it's sad that we have to look to Europe to do it, right? It because is. I don't sort of see their coming out of Congress. And I am not like a, you know, sort of crazy liberal person. I'm just, I'm more like a pragmatist. And it, it's yeah. just like, I don't, the complexity of these issues are such that I don't think like you're, your everyday voter is able to sort of influence. It's, it's so much easier for sort of special interests to kind of make sure that the changes that happen are ones that benefit the companies and the, and the groups that make, you know, billions of dollars. Plus you have issues around national security and, and whatnot. So you have multiple interests sort of lined up on the side of reducing privacy and maybe the, your organization, the ACLU and a few others kind of on that other, on, on that other side. I think you're right. And I, I have to tell you, I am pleased that Congress probably won't do anything because I would be concerned about what it would look like. Right now, I don't th- think that there has been appropriate enough compromise and discussion. And I mean that in a good way, not this, oh, we're making sausage kind of way. And let me let me explain to you what I mean. In the environmental movement, there has been real progress made in a lot of ways. Now, I do think environmentalists are a bit on their heels right now. But just apart from that, I do think that there has been a, a very broad understanding that, look, we have environmental concerns. We need to address environmental concerns. And I think that there is a broad consensus about that. And I do think you find industries such as 
carpet manufacturers and whatnot coming to a, a very good consensus place where they're still having their businesses, but they're moving to a zero carbon uh, footprint, etc. We don't have that quite yet in privacy, it, with the exception of a few companies that are working really hard to be trustworthy. And, and who would you put in that category? I'll give you a great example. I'm going to give you an example of DuckDuckGo. Yeah. So DuckDuckGo contacted World Privacy Forum, oh, it was about, let's see, a year and a half ago or so now. And they told, we had a conversation, they said, look, we want to be a trusted company and we want to do everything we can to be a trusted company because we want the digital ecosystem to be vibrant. We, we want to assist with that. And so they supported us and funded us to write a new guide for HIPAA and a parent's guide to privacy, which we're working on. But I thought that that approach of become, we want to become a trusted company, I thought that was really interesting. And I think that's the right approach. And we have to start having these conversations and they have to be meaningful. And I'm very concerned that one of the things that we really have to do is we have to start looking at, okay, just kind of envision a, th- a thought experiment where we don't have regulation. How do you protect privacy in an environment where there's no regulation? And the answer is you have to have companies who care. So will good industry please raise their hands now and let's work together, right? And I think that's going to have to happen. We have to learn to talk to each other. We've come to that point. We're at that same point that the environmental movement got to where it's like you can't just or with people you disagree with. You've got to find a way to work together. And there's, it can't be disingenuous. Yeah. And um, I mean, I think, you know, clearly Facebook is getting particularly tarred right now because they've been probably one of the worst actors there, right? And I think- but They deserve I, I, a lot of criticism yeah, right I, now. I, I would agree, right? And I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think if, although I'm hopeful because I'm starting to see, like already you can see in Facebook's numbers and you, and you saw it in the stock market this week, they got hammered. And I think if Facebook didn't have Instagram, right? That's the other thing is like, you know, I think if you really want to leave Facebook, you've got to leave Instagram as well, which I think is at least for my generation a lot harder. But I, I've not seen like Snapchat really step up or the other competing kind of products to say, hey, you know, we, we have actually thought about privacy in a much more fundamental way. Like we have, we have taken these ideas to our core because I think they're afraid, right? I think they're afraid of the revenue, hit on revenue. But you know, I think you're right. But I would also submit to you this idea. There has been a focus on privacy that's not quite the right idea of privacy. It's almost like the conversation's over way off here in the woods, but really we need a different conversation. The conversation should really be about, instead of saying what we hate and what we don't like, why can't we have an affirmative vision for what we do want? So here's my affirmative vision for what I want. I want companies to have a general understanding of data governance and knowledge governance and information governance that establishes rules of fairness, rules of generally accepted use of data that really establishes, you know, meaningful boundaries for when and how you shouldn't use data. And this to me is where real privacy happens is at the, in the trenches. And I've been all over the world doing this privacy stuff. And I've learned that there are good companies out there. There are really good people out there trying to do the right thing. And it's always the people in the trenches who, who come up with the ideas of how to actually protect privacy. So really clever ideas about, okay, so here's how we can do this and here's how we can do that. And one of the projects I'm working on now is to figure out what are these people doing? When you boil down all that they're doing, what is it that they're doing? And I think we can pass 
all the laws in the world. But if people don't listen to the laws, and if the laws don't actually solve the problem, then we're no better off. So one of the examples that just drives me batty, I mean, we wrote a report in 2014 called The Scoring of America. And we spent seven years researching that report and intensively the last year and a half. And one of the reasons it took us so long to research the report is we were doing the reports on predictive analytics and how people are categorized and what that does to them in their real lives. And we found a lot of health scores and whatnot. But finally, we were finding enough research and it took time for the market to mature. And in our documentation, we found that a major health plan in the United States hired a major analytics company to do a 1,200-factor analysis of uh, purchase patterns and other data that they, you know, procured from a variety of sources. We'll just put it that way. They did an analysis. They found the top 25 most predictive factors. One was smoking. No surprise, right? Of course, there was obesity. There was all the ones you would expect. But then there was like the new analysis, another very predictive factor in the top 25, how much you spend on online clothing purchases. Super predictive poor health, or was it good health, but it predicted your health. Then another one was um, how much camping gear you bought. So I tell everyone, go buy some camping gear, make sure it's on your credit card. (laughs) If there's a loyalty card, use it. You can kind of gamify the system a little bit, but that was also predictive of good health. And I, I thought to myself, this is just exactly what we're trying to prevent. When we go shopping, personally, I don't know a lot of people that pay cash anymore. I really don't. For all sorts of reasons, it's, it's, very helpful to keep track of. Apple Pay is very helpful and other, anyhow, very few people are going to whip out $500 for a $500 purchase. Right. Yeah. So since that's not happening, our purchases can be used to help decide how good or bad we are or profitable or not profitable or healthy or not healthy. And you know what? I'm not so sure about that. So what rules would, what rules would touch that in all the different permutations and all the different settings. I don't know that there are. So we have to find solutions that are going to work in very nuanced ways. And, you know, I like to say that the command and control regulatory era is over. And I also like to say that there's not one single giant perfect solution that's going to fix privacy. I think we need a lot of multifactorial solutions that attack the problem from all sorts of different angles. And we need to implement all of them and really work at that instead of just going, okay, we hate this. Let's do, let's figure out what works. Let's, let's do that. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's funny. I mean, privacy, as we've talked about, is sort of about keeping things hidden or concealed, right? Like your personal individual individual information and other factors as well. But I think in some ways, transparency, right? Like, in fact, we want less transparency on necessarily what what an individual is doing, but we want more transparency on what government, on what organizations are doing and understanding. Because that's, I think, where, where fundamentally it's problematic. It's you're not understanding what they're doing with that data. You don't have full full understanding of how broadly they're using it or where it's going, right? Yeah, you're exactly right. You articulated that beautifully. You know, the for me, the linchpin of understanding identity came with the identity theft crisis in the 1990s. When the first hearings were being held about identity theft, I thought, you know what, we've got a two-edged sword here. We're saying that identity can be used for fraud, which means we're going to have to give more identity. And I kept warning all the privacy advocates, be careful, be careful here, make sure you, you know, put in protections for asking for identity. And it just, it was a little early. I don't, you know, 
people didn't quite see that risk. But now with biometrics and identity, I mean, here's what I'll say. I think identity is absolutely the linchpin to privacy. And by privacy, I mean, privacy is a subset of broader issues like human autonomy, freedom of thought and and whatnot. So identity is a complete linchpin. And it's not going to be possible in the future world for us to simply hide our identity. I know there's all sorts of discussion of hyperledgers, blockchain identity, but you know, at the end of the day, this world that we live in with its risks and whatnot is going to require lots and lots of identity. So that means we have to have agency and we have to have agency with our identity and our data. What does that look like in the digital ecosystem? That's what we have to figure out. Yeah, you're reminding me. I, I talked with um, one of the sort of uh, leaders of the digital kind of infrastructure in Estonia, right? And oh, yes. Know, um, yes, yes, yes. Um, Tamir, do you know, yes. know, you know, you, you know Tamir? I don't know uh, him personally. But uh, it was interesting, you know, the, the they are, I was sort of calling it like a postcard from the future because they basically, since the early, late 90s, early 2000s, uh, kind of brought themselves to a fully digital economy. Yeah. And they have one of these incredibly interesting things where you have essentially reverse big brother, right? So you can see all of the the uses of your that the government at least is you where they where they have data and how they're using it. And I wonder do you see something sort of like that coming like out of GDPR or other kind of maybe it's not a, a legislative kind of solution but but basically individuals start saying I want to understand that the way that you're using it or I'm no longer going to involve you and no longer use you as a company or involve me. I think that day is coming and companies need to be prepared for it. I do see that coming. Estonia is an incredible use case. I actually wrote about Estonia and the India's Aadhaar biometric system and and compared them. Estonia has a remarkable system. You and I could both sign up for Estonian IDs. It's a global digital ID. It's absolutely fascinating. Fascinating. And, you know, they're part of Europe, so they fall under European privacy rules, they really did it right. It's its so important to study. So I did it actually a comparison. So that was hard to write. That was good research though. So I believe that this issue of who's using my data and oh, by the way, who'd you sell it to and how they use it? If we knew that and if companies had to disclose that, we would have a different world and I think it would be a better world. Yeah. I mean, I, as we think about right to be forgotten, I think it's really interesting. Um, and GDPR, the, one of the nightmare scenarios for companies is that they'll get essentially like a right to be forgotten storm, right? Where a ton of individuals will basically start asking to be forgotten from their databases, right? Because it will essentially blow up their, like you'll start to just, it'll be a huge amount of work for these companies, but also fundamentally like mess with their, the value of their databases as well. So this is where the value of being a trusted company comes in. Because if you can show users that you're not selling their data to third parties, I think that would make a big difference. Yeah, I'm with you, right? Although maybe it's the pragmatist in me, right? Like there's the carrot, right? But I think you've also, you know, that companies sadly often aren't going to move unless they're forced to, right? Like how do you create the sense of a of a stick for them too? I think that Europe has a stick. The United States doesn't have a stick right now. I'm very interested in what happens happens with Facebook. I don't know what's going to happen with Facebook in the US. I think Europe will be very complex and lengthy. I know that the FTC has opened a Facebook investigation, but what does this all mean for us in the long term? I think it's going to be very important to write that story and to, to see how it turns out. But we need to influence the ending of that story and the outcome. Do you, I mean, from the people that I talk to, and this is, you know, CISOs, kind of CIOs, etc., like they effectively see, see GDPR as the 
rules of the game, right? Like because it's it's virtually impossible to understand whether an individual is a European citizen or not, right? So and the potential penalties are so large that you essentially have to play by GDPR rules. Now there's some other like I'd love to get your thoughts because there's some intersections where essentially GDPR and US law or other legislative frameworks are in are in direct conflict, right? So you you either follow GDPR or you or you violate like US law. And so essentially we're waiting for those to be a legislated or case law to essentially resolve those issues. How do you sort of see what, what are you do you predict that GDPR will sort of run the table as the as the rules of the game or what what's the game that you sort of I don't know. It's you know it's hard to tell. I was just at a Berkeley Law Privacy Forum conference and so a couple of people got up and said, you know, GDPR has been overhyped. And I thought that was an interesting take on it. And I do think that there's going to be compliance issues. We have to see what happens in May and what actions the data protection authorities take. But here's the complicating thing about GDPR. GDPR allows for multiple, multiple state-level regulations. So we may see very, very strong state-level regulations coming out in certain places. I let me put it this way. GDPR is the starting gun, and I don't know where it will lead. I don't. But I think we are we are approaching a new era, and the Facebook data debacle could not have come at a worse time for Facebook and for data use in general. It's provoked so much discussion. Well, this is great. Uh, thank you so much. Anything, thank you. Um, just such a great wide-ranging discussion. Anything, last sort of parting thoughts before you go? Yeah. The people I talk to who call World Privacy Forum, a lot of them feel like they need to give up because they just can't bother with privacy anymore, but they feel discouraged about it. We have to decide what we're going to affirmatively get done. What do you want to have protected and how do you get to fight for it? That's what we have to do. This is awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.